At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. So our episode today was called The Things Nightmares Are Made Of by the prosecution in this case. But before we dig into the crime itself, let me tell you a little bit about the victims of this crime, the Savopoulos family. Amy and her husband, Savas Savopoulos, met in college at the University of Maryland. And after college, the two moved to Washington, D.C., where Savas went to work for his father, who runs American Ironworks. Now, I wasn't familiar with this company, mm-hmm. but... They helped rebuild the Pentagon after 9-11. They provided steel for the National Stadium, you know, among other, like, really large projects. So by all accounts, this was a very lucrative position for him, especially after his dad retired and he took over the family company. Yeah. So over time, Amy and Savas had three children, Abigail and Katarina, both of whom are high school students and away at boarding school at the time of the crime, and then the baby of the family, 10-year-old Philip who they jokingly called the prince because he was the firstborn son of an extremely Greek Orthodox family. Rounding out their family, they had two dogs who they loved like children, Ginger, who was a bit aggressive and protective of her family, and Bear, a puppy that was fairly new to the Savopoulos family. By all accounts, the family was extremely happy and enjoyed the luxuries that Savas's job provided. They participated in what my hairdresser calls RPS, otherwise known as rich people shit. (laughs) Think fancy wine clubs, exclusive country club memberships, a hobby for expensive cars. In fact, Amy owned a Porsche 911, and Savas drove um, either his Range Rover or his Bentley to work and kept a Mosler sports car just for fun. They also owned several vacation homes in addition to their main home in the Tony neighborhood of Massachusetts Avenue Heights. Now, this neighborhood is sandwiched in between Embassy Row and Woodley Park, only minutes from the vice president's residence and home to the National Cathedral. Now, Mel, you spent a good amount of time in D.C. You got your master's at Georgetown, right? What can you tell us about these neighborhoods? Yeah, this is a beautiful, I mean, this is a Tony neighborhood. So I know that the two of you recently took our our sons to D.C. as part of their eighth grade class trip. Well, this would be the antithesis of like where you guys were. You guys were um, actually only like 10 minutes away, but you were in the tourist areas. This is where the high, you know, the high society, the wealthy folks of D.C. live. So still within the District of Columbia, but if you actually kind of pictured on a map, you would have been about 10 minutes straight north of where you had been located, kind of like in the downtown, you know, tourist areas. So you're north of Georgetown. Um, This neighborhood is uh, sandwiched in between the National Cathedral, which is gorgeous on one side, kind of American University, which is a great, um, really nice private university, but still it feels suburban, but yet only like 10, 15 minutes from downtown DC and the National Zoo. So this is a street, the streets are very curvy, highly wooded. Um, It feels very kind of neighborhoody. Um, this is a home to political royalty, obviously. The national, um, the, the vice president's home is there. It is lots of ambassadors, high-end corporate brass. The houses here have tall hedges, brick walls, heavily treed, woody streets, lots of beautiful azaleas in the springtime. So it's a really 
nice neighborhood. But for those of you who think of DC um, only from kind of like the like the touristy kind of visiting, this is not that. But yet it's very very close. So I'm excited about this story. They lit, moved into their house when I first moved to DC, but I was not affording a three million dollar home <laughs> at the time. Um, so I. This story happened after we moved back to Texas, but my friend Anne had actually uh, texted us and was like, yes, you guys got to go do this house and this story because it was famous and is it's just crazy when she started talking oh. about Heather. Um, so, Elena, you're in for a good one. Okay, so from what I can tell, the Savopolis family purchased the home at 3201 Woodland Drive Northwest in 2001 for just under $3 million dollars. I should know that the purchaser in the tax records for the sale is a trust, but that is the last recorded purchase prior to our story occurring. And that's pretty p- common when you have very wealthy people purchasing I, I was going to ask you too, like I, I feel like I see sometimes stories about a trust. Is that really kind of like the upper, I don't know, tax bracket? Like, is that a normal thing to do? That's my impression. Or, or if you don't want anyone to know that, like if you're dealing with an athlete or someone of any notoriety and you don't necessarily want anyone to know that you're the one buying it or that person's the one buying it, they'll do that. Yeah, it's definitely a good way to have confidentiality. I mean, I see it with even like, you know, government employees, not at the ambassador level, but, you know, if you just don't want people to know where you live. Okay. And then, you know, if you're coming from a very wealthy family chances are there is a trust set up in your name already and you're using those funds to purchase it. So uh, anyway, I'm pretty sure that was their purchase, but just because it's a little bit unique, wanted to mention that. Well, didn't y'all purchase your first homes with a trust? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I trust that my mortgage is going to be paid for. It's like, what was that one we talked about? It was... um, Oh, in Del Coronado, where he gifted them that $5 million beachfront mansion. Congratulations, yeah. All right, so this home is not on the beach. It is a five-bedroom, seven-bath, red-brick, two-story traditional-style home. And it reminds me a lot of the house from Home Alone. If you want to get a picture of that in your head, this house does not have shutters. The one in Home Alone did, but otherwise they look very similar. And we do have floor plans of the property on our socials and website if you all want to check them out. Um, It sits on 0.37 acres. And, of course, standard lot sizes vary in different areas of the country. But a standard lot here in Dallas is what, Alana, like 50 by 150, 50 feet wide by 150 feet deep, something like that? Yeah, so this one would be over twice that size, and it also boasts 160-foot frontage on Woodland Drive, so that's a, meeting a nice wide lot in a, in a prime location. So as their children got older, the Savopolis family became engaged in other hobbies. Savas took up martial arts, and their son became interested in go-kart racing, hobbies they invested heavily in with both their time and their money. And I mention these hobbies as they both play a key part in our story today. So on May 13th, 2015, Savas is working hard to get his new dojo studio ready for its grand opening over the weekend. He has decided to turn his hobby of martial arts into another business venture, and it is all hands on deck to get the space ready in time for opening day. Savas was at the studio out in suburban Virginia, along with their longtime housekeeper, Nellie Gutierrez, and his assistant slash driver, Jordan Wallace, among others. Nellie had worked for the family for over 20 years and by this time was actually building a cleaning business of her own. So she had turned over the day-to-day housekeeping of the Silopolis house to her friend, Vera Figueroa. 
and she handled more like project-based duties for the family. Jordan Wallace, on the other hand, was relatively new to employment with the Savopolis family. Savas and Jordan met at the racetrack where Philip was doing go-kart training, and Savas asked Jordan to be his driver courier. I do feel like if you're going to need a driver, somebody that trains people on go-karts is maybe a good way to go. Yeah, yeah. Now, accounts I've read differ, but at most, he had worked for the family for about two years and at least about four months, so somewhere in between there. And Amy, being a very supportive partner to Savas, would have probably been there as well, but Philip had stayed home from school that day to go to a dermatologist appointment. He had a cut on his lip that had occurred as a result of him playing with one of the dogs that they wanted to get checked out. Around 325 that afternoon, a friend of Amy's is on her way to carpool and sees Amy walking down the street. She later comments that she knew it was her because she admired her athleisure outfit and great bag. And look, that is totally the kind of witness I would be. Maybe like, Mrs. Guild, how did you know Elena was at pickup at 320 today? I'd be like, well, I thought her shoes were really cute and her eye makeup looked great. And I thought, ooh, I can probably Google how to do that eye makeup. So, um, But for the record, I would not be in carpool with my eye makeup done in a cute outfit on. Oh, lie, so lie, like lie, her lie, PJs lie. Or her I, bun and you're one or the other. I've seen you at like full on gorgeous glam. And then I've seen you in the <laughs> like bad. <laughs> in all seriousness, though, let's talk more about what we know of this timeline on May 13th beyond that 325 sighting by her friend. Vera, the housekeeper, usually leaves the house for the day between 3 and 3.30. At 3.14, the pet hotel where the Savopolis family normally boards their dogs calls to confirm their appointment for the upcoming Memorial Day weekend. Unable to reach the family on their home line, the person confirming the reservation makes the following note in their system. Could not leave message for reservation. Home phone disconnected. The owner, knowing Amy's a great client, then proceeds to call her cell phone and leave a voicemail asking Amy to call her back before 6.30 that evening. Now, sometime between 4.45 and 5.30, Amy places a call to Savas. Exactly what she says is unknown, but what we do know comes from their housekeeper, Nellie, who said she was standing by Savas when the call came in and could sort of overhear Amy on the phone. Amy told Savas that she had somewhere to be and needed him to come home to take care of Philip. Savas goes ahead and says, great, I'll do that. Tell, and he tells Nellie to close up the shop and he heads home per Amy's request. Now, this sort of raises some red flags for me immediately. If your husband was about to launch a new business and he was there working on it, what would he say if you called him and you're like, hey, I've got to run an errand and come home? I know what your husband would say. Your husband is so sweet. He'd be like, sure, Alana. Well, it depends on the errand, I guess. I guess. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm really curious what she said to, to get him, him to come everything. home. Mm. And also, as the story proceeds to not alert the authorities mm. in any way. Yeah, that's a hard one because this was the middle of the week. He is a large um, business owner, but he's also setting up like a separate other business. And this wasn't like nearby. Like the, he, his new dojo was in Chantilly, Virginia, which is a good 45 minutes or so easily from their house. So yeah, I, she must have been a good actress or I don't know. I don't know either. I just, you know, I think it's almost the end of the day anyway. What would be so important that he can't say like, hey, I need another hour here to finish up. Right. I just, I'd be really curious how that conversation went. Regardless of how it went, sometime before 630, Amy does return the call about the pet's upcoming reservations. 
The first time she calls, the owner said she didn't hear anyone on the line and the call just sort of went dead. And then Amy called again 10 to 15 minutes later and said, yes, please keep that reservation on file. And the owner goes on to say that they typically chat, you know, have a little bit of a longer conversation because they've worked together for so long. But on this call, she did say that Amy sounded sleepy or under the weather and the call was relatively short. At 9 p.m., Amy calls Domino's Pizza and gave instructions to them to leave the pizza on the doorstep and not ring the doorbell when they arrive. Now, remember, this is pre-COVID, so that request to just leave pizza on the porch is a little bit odd for the time. So the delivery guy says the house was dark when he arrived. He delivered the pizza as instructed and left. At 9.50, Savas calls Nellie, the housekeeper that was at the JoJo with them, and tells her that Amy is sick and she should not come to work the next day. He goes on to say that Vera, the housekeeper that's there at the house, that her phone died and he doesn't have a charger that works with her phone. So he asks Nellie if she can let anyone know that might be worried about her that she's there at the house. He mentions that Vera's going to stay over the night since Amy isn't feeling well and they need help with their son. Now, when you hear these calls they made, they're, the episode I watched of 2020 has some really good recordings of them. They're incredibly poised. They sound normal. There is nothing in their tone that I think would alert someone that something's wrong. They're all just very matter-of-fact. That's amazing to me. I mean, I, partly I would think that if I if something was going on, I would try and say something like, oh, John, my husband's name is not John, uh, uh, I think you need to, nothing's wrong here, nothing's wrong here at all, or you know, something mm-hmm. like that would be trying. But that's easier to say, say in retrospect, mm-hmm. not when it's going on at the time. Yeah, it reminds me of a Criminal Minds episode where they, you know, they're on the phone and they hang up and he's like, oh, well, he said something about, you know, the Bible and he's never read the Bible his whole life. So that must be a clue that he's somewhere religious. You know, I was like, oh, they really took that and ran with it. But yeah. Okay. So at some point that evening, Savas texts his driver, Jordan Wallace, asking him to meet the company accountant early the next morning at American Ironworks to pick up a package and deliver it to his house. The following morning, May 14th, provides further clues in the story's timeline. Sometime between 9 and 9.30, the sprinkler guy comes to the door and he rings the bell, but no one answers. So he just leaves to go on to the next house on his list. And sometime that afternoon, like around 1.10-ish, Amy calls the sprinkler company's office, I think to tell them not to come. But she leaves a message and the owner calls back at 1.12. And he does say at that point that Amy sounded very nervous told them not to come back that day and said that she needed to leave the house because her son was injured. At 9.30 that morning, Nellie Gutierrez received a text from Amy saying, I'm making sure you do not come today. Gutierrez says she called Amy right back, but the call went to voicemail. And in an interview with People Magazine, she goes on to say, I texted her, I hope everything is okay, but didn't get a reply. Now, Vera's husband goes to the house the next morning as well. When his wife isn't home after his overnight shift at work, He gets very concerned, and so he drives over to the Savopolis house, and he takes his daughter, Claudia, who would be Vera's stepdaughter, with him to the house. He knocks on the door. He rings the doorbell, but no one comes. And he later tells investigators that he thought someone was inside because he could hear noises and shuffling. Now, meanwhile, Claudia's out here in the car, and while sitting in the car waiting for her dad to come back from the house, she sees Amy's Porsche in the driveway, and she snaps a picture of it, 
and sends it to her car-loving boyfriend at 9.34 a.m. Around 10, Savas calls Vera's husband from inside the house, and he apologizes for not calling him the night before. And he says, you know, Vera's gone to the hospital with Amy now. As soon as I have more information, I'll let you know. And really, none of this sits right with Vera's husband, but he's not really sure what else to do. I mean, he can't force his way into the house. You know, he doesn't know what hospital she's gone to. So for the time being, he just goes home, but but he doesn't feel good about it. Now, remember, the night before, Savas had texted Jordan Wallace to meet the company accountant that morning. He does so at 9.40 a.m. at a Bank of America in Maryland, where they proceed to get $40,000 in cash. Wallace drives into D.C. and calls Savas when he's about 10 minutes away. Savas instructs him to leave the money in the car, which was parked inside the garage. At 10.26 a.m., Savas receives a text from Jordan that says, package delivered. At some point between that text message at 10.26 a.m. and 1.30 that afternoon, the blue Porsche is driven away from the home. At 1.30 that afternoon, only three hours after the money was delivered to the house, the initial call comes into the local police station reporting a fire at the property. When police entered the home, they found four bodies, but much to their surprise, they had not been killed in the fire. The adults had been bound to chairs and beaten with a baseball bat. All four victims had been stabbed multiple times, suffocated, and set on fire. Vera was still alive when the police entered the home, but died on the way to the hospital and was not able to communicate with police. Additionally, her English was not very good, and she often had to have Nellie translate instructions for her. So even if she had been able to communicate at this point, it's hard to say that it would have provided any clues as to what happened. Investigators believe that the fire was initially set in Philip's bedroom as it had burned so hot in there that the iron bed was sliding into a hole in the floor. Now, as you can imagine, this crime shocked this affluent neighborhood, and residents were terrified they didn't know if this was a random or a targeted crime. At 5.30 that evening, police discovered the blue Porsche aflame in a church parking lot just east of D.C. and Maryland. According to reports, this location is a relatively busy area, and there is security footage of one man running away from the car carrying a bucket, of all things. Okay, so that was a lot of information, and I have a lot of initial questions. I'm sure you do, too. My first question that I wanted answered after looking into this was, did they have a security system Mm -hmm, at the house? mm -hmm. And they did, um, but the security company owner said that they were still in the process of setting up the system. They were having some trouble getting it to work right. I guess they were getting like false alarms with glass break sensors. But, and this is important, the security cameras were just recording to a device in the third floor media room. So it wasn't recording to the cloud. It wasn't set up to send it to the security company. And also really important, the company owner testified at trial that Savas called him twice, once on the evening of the 13th, and once on the morning of the 14th, asking where the video was recording and asking if it was in the cloud. Investigators think that the perpetrator had Savas make this call so that he could make sure he took the recordings of the crime with him. Mm-hmm. So that was my big initial question. What about y'all? Anything that jumps out? Well, didn't you say that the dogs were really territorial? Why didn't why did the dog attack? Yeah, I. that's a really great question. Um and, you know, and the neighbors said they didn't hear the dogs barking that day or night. Mm-hmm. So Nellie said that while the dogs could be aggressive, they were also really well behaved once told to mm-hmm. obey. So, you know, she thought that maybe 
the intruders told them at risk of bodily harm, literally, to to call off the dogs, and they did so. So, but Alana, you'll be glad to know that the dogs are okay and were not mm-hmm. hurt during okay. the, the course Good. of this crime. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of questions. Yeah. And, you know, other than money that was delivered to the house, like what was the motive mm-hmm. for this right. crime? And it seems like a really horrific crime for $40,000. Right, right. I mean, if you were going to do that. Wouldn't you want a little more money? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's what investigators think happened. From what they can piece together, Amy, Philip, and Vera were already being held hostage when Savas returned home from the dojo. They believe that the housekeeper was the first person to encounter the intruder or intruders as her DNA was found on a bat. So they think that he came in and she tried to fight him off Mm -hmm. as he came into the house. Further, they think the perpetrator separated 10-year-old Philip from the adults in order to have better control over his parents. Now, I wasn't aware of this, but apparently D.C. police are backed up by federal authorities. So as such, the ATF, or the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, gets involved in this case. And they have the ability to pull DNA from fire-damaged materials. So technicians were able to test a partially eaten piece of crust from the pizza And it provided the DNA from the attacker that they were hoping it would. And when the FBI ran that DNA through their database, they got a hit. The DNA was a match for a man by the name of Darren Wendt. Now, Darren had been fired from American Ironworks in 2009, six years prior to this crime occurring. And he had a lengthy criminal record. Once Darren was identified as the suspect, a nationwide manhunt was underway. And it did not take investigators long to apprehend him. On Wednesday, May 20th, only five days after the crime, Wendt goes to New York City to see his girlfriend. He takes her on a shopping spree, paying with $100 bills, and it's there in New York that he sees a picture of himself on the news. So he takes a $900 taxi ride from New York City to his father's house in D.C., where he tries to come up with an escape plan with his family. Now, authorities are able to track him to a hotel in D.C., and they decide to follow him as he leaves. But fearing for the safety of the three women in the vehicle with him and noticing a second vehicle following them, they call in air support to follow the cars. The authorities then use a vehicle pin blocking maneuver surrounding his car on all sides and pinning it in so the car can't move, just like something you would see in like a James Bond film. Who are the three women in the car with him? So they end up being just sort of auxiliary guest. It sounds like, you know, he came back to DC. Maybe he was at his dad's house. His brother or his cousin were there. Okay. They were like, okay, hey, let's go get some weed from my buddy. Yikes. They show up. There are people there. You know how those things okay, happen. Okay. Gotcha. I mean, okay. I don't know how those things happen. You don't know how those things <laughs> right. happen. But oh, yes. you know, it was yes. just um nobody involved in the earlier portion of okay. the crime, you don't think. So luckily they are able to apprehend Went without any further injuries or excitement. And as the prosecutors prepare to try him for these crimes, interesting and damaging information about him begins to come out. You know, they of course discover that he worked at American Ironworks for two years, but was let go several years before the crime occurred, like we discussed. But in 2010, he went back to American Ironworks with a machete, a BB gun, and a beer. What the heck? I know. Another machete in one of these stories, too. But he got off lightly on that arrest for some reason. 
His attorneys for previous crimes goes on a massive press spree, saying that Wentz a really nice guy and labeling him as someone who would let have lunch with your grandmother, Elena. They also discover that his dad got a protective order against him because he feared living with him. And several of Wentz's relatives say he was known for a quick temper. At trial, Wentz claims that his brother asked him to come by the house and he had no idea that a crime was occurring. In fact, initial theories into the crime supported the idea that more than one perpetrator was involved, but police never charged anyone else with the crime. I mean, the more I look at this, it it definitely seems suspicious that it was just went. I mean, one person, uh, three adults, one child, you know, the uh, the father, uh, you got to imagine he was highly motivated to save his family. But at the same time, I mean, he was a uh, martial artist. He was, you know, opening up a dojo. Uh, there, there, it, there's a lot of other evidence that says that there might have been other people involved, but not enough that the police were ever to charge anyone. I mean, it just seems suspicious that for that long a period of time that there was only uh, one person that, that ultimately, spoiler alert, gets charged with a crime. What yeah. do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And also, as you were thinking about it, I was thinking back to how he separated the little boy from them. So there were parts in the hours that they were all, you know, being held hostage that presumably one party was without him. Like he was with, you know, either the son or the, or the family. So yeah, that doesn't make sense that there's only one perpetrator. Right. Because you would think if he left the they room to the look at the kid. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you know, when I was doing some research on this, I guess, because he was really into the martial arts and also, you know, a luxury collector of things he had swords on the walls like all over his house. Hmm. So, I mean, there was there were probably a lot of opportunities if he could get to a weapon mm-hmm. uh, to have that available. I mean, and there was a lot of um, voicemails <laughs> that were being given to everybody from the, mm-hmm. the dog sitters to his assistant to the family of the other housekeeper. It, it definitely seems suspicious that there wasn't an ability to give some mm-hmm. sort of notice to any of these people um, if there wasn't at least two two assailants. I agree. And it, it also makes you wonder, like, if they weren't being watched like that, you would think that they would be under the impression that if they got through the night, like everything they said mm-hmm. sort of made it think mm-hmm. they were going to come out on the other side of this yeah. in a positive manner once the money was delivered. I mean, well, and, you know, while, like we said, they didn't, ever end up charging anybody else with this crime, they did look really intently at Jordan Wallace. Now, remember, he's that assistant slash driver that delivered the $40,000 cash to the Savopolis home on the morning of the 14th. And it's suspicious because he lied to the police about not knowing the amount of money he delivered to the house. But, you know, in, in true, like, millennial form, there's a text message that he sent from him to his girlfriend showing all these $100 bills and saying, you know, look how cool my job is. I'm delivering 40 Gs for work today. And he went on to change several other details in his accounts to the police on, you know, how and when he picked up the money and how and when he delivered it. Also, interestingly, um, according to the investigators, Wallace returned to the scene of the crime or to the house and said that his car was parked inside the police tape. So that, you know, to the detectives means that he was there before the tape went up and left and then came back hours later. 
So it only took the jury two days to return a guilty verdict for Darren Went. Well, unfortunately, that is the story of the Savopoulos family and their housekeeper, Vera Figueroa. Um, but do you all want to know what happened to the house? Yes, please. Okay. So the house was obviously horribly damaged by the fire. And it went on the market for $3.5 million in as-is condition. Mel, your note said $4.5 million. You think it was yeah, like- it looked like it, it was initially four and a half and okay. then not sold. And then it was put on again. Uh, I mean, like so many of these stories where a terrible crime has occurred, you know, they're they're trying to offload the house pretty quickly. Yeah, so I think when it went on at 4.5, it sort of sat for a while with boarded up windows and like police tape, which you know the neighbors had to hate. I mean, right. you know, that's just a reminder daily of the crime that occurred there. Um, but once it dropped to 3.5 million, it sold really quickly at $3 million and the owners had plans to tear down the house and build. The new owners tore the house down in 2017. Um, And at some point in that process, the address was changed from 3201 Woodland Drive Northwest to 2802 32nd Street Northwest. You know, we've seen this in a couple of the stories that we've covered. It it definitely seems to give the appearance of a fresh start to a stigmatized property. But the ones that we've spoken about, the street name has stayed the same, just the number changed. But this one... The number and the street name changed? Had yeah, because it was on a sort of on a corner. So oh, I think they picked the they other street. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And you know, Elena, I'm not sure that we've talked about as-is sales before, though. I don't uh, think so. Have you sold many properties in as-is condition? No. Um, so essentially an as-is condition means that the sellers are not going to do any repairs, nor is a buyer going to get any credit for anything that needs to be fixed. And when a client knows they're going to tear down the house and build, there's a lot of risks. There's not a lot of risks. Um, to purchasing as is. But if a client plans to live in the home, it really requires a lot of due diligence, um, inspections to make sure the buyer knows the condition of the house. A lot of investors will buy as is because they have the crew and the means and the money most of the time to address any issues. Well, and two, the other thing to think about is talking about your pool of narrowing down buyers. It really is probably going to be a cash purchase. Mm -hmm. You know, you might be able to get some sort of construction loan on it, but you're not going to be able to get a traditional mortgage on something that you can't get insurance on. Yeah. (laughs) And so this house, you know, in fire damage condition, it really had to be sold as, you know, as mm-hmm, is. They're not mm-hmm. going to repair the, right. the fire damaged rooms and, and that kind of thing. Well, and I thought it was really interesting. DC law says that if a potential buyer asks if anyone has died in the home, the realtor has to be truthful, but they don't have to volunteer the information if not asked. That seems so gray. I agree. I like black and white. That's not black yeah. and white at all. Now, again, this one is pretty, you know, well-known. Right. So um, I think everybody knows <laughs> So the purchasers of this home, the ones that originally bought it when it was listed in as-is condition, decided not to build on the property or the empty lot after all, and they relisted it for $2.95 million, so about $50,000 less than they paid for it a few years prior. It sold in 2021 for $2.6 million. And if you all want to do a deeper dive into this story, I highly recommend the Missing Pieces podcast. It's hosted by two D.C. journalists who are covering the crime and the trial in real time, and I found it fascinating. A lot of additional theories and a lot of additional information that we just don't have time to cover in this. All right, ladies, so pull out your pocketbooks. Would you buy it? Would you build on the lot since obviously you can't live in it now? Or would you list it? Okay, I think I would build on the lot because of the area, it sounds like, and they know who did it, presumably, if it was the only 
if he's the only perpetrator, and he's in prison. Okay. And I assume you would list it. I mean, it's a oh, lot yeah. at this yeah, point. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Mel? Yeah, no, I, I think so. Um, obviously, if the house had not been torn down, I don't think I would have. I mean, th- this was pretty um, throughout the house. Um, but nowadays, no. It, it is amazing that I saw that the purchaser of the home ultimately decided not to build upon it and seems to have lost some money on it for as good of a location, a high-profile spot it was. I'm surprised that they've lost some money on it, um, sign of the times. Well, and, and if you think about, like, they sold it again in, what, 2021? I mean, building prices were going up mm-hmm. astronomically oh, right. yeah. in 2020, yeah. and I've seen that happen quite a bit where people, you know, buy the lot, they get the plans done, and then by the time they're finished, it's twice as expensive and oh, it's going to yeah. take three times as long and they just buy something that's already moving ready. Mm-hmm. Well, if you guys are enjoying the podcast, we have a we have a task for you. Just give us I a like little it. shout out. We'd yeah. like it. Thanks. All right. We'll see you all next week. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our crime estate family. If you're curious about today's featured crime estate, You can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week. Location. Extremely Greek Orthodox family.